Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, in well, we've come to the end of it, at least uh, for a while. Um, I'm going to look at Radio Free Albemuth in this episode, and this this will be the the final episode of the Philip K. Dick Book Club until I I come back to it and sometime in the future to look at the other posthumous novels. This is one posthumous novel I wanted to to look at because it does tie it together with the Ballast trilogy. It, it really is part of the Vallis trilogy, even more so than I think Transmigration of Timothy Archer. It, it, it helps contextualize some of the themes, especially in Vallis. It helps make him give it a little bit more sense. It, it kind of flushes out that story quite a lot. It, it's also, in my view, a better novel than Vallis and a lot more interesting. I think it's a bit of a shame that Radio Free Alba myth was, was, was not the way he went. He, he wrote this in 1975, which... Uh, is, was right after his 1974 experiences, so it's written uh, fairly close after that. So there's a lot of retreading of what happened in Vallis in Radio Free Albemuth. Um, it's it's got some of the same themes. It's got the same sort of split characterization that we see in Vallis, but it's set in an alternate America in which that has fallen into a a political tyranny you know it's kind of loosely based off of like the Richard Nixon years but it's this guy Francis Fremont who's briefly mentioned in Vallis as the president of the United States in some alternate uh, alternate world that was like the, the story in the movie Vallis within that story right in this novel um, Philip K Dick plays himself again he plays a writer and as in Vallis, where there's kind of a part of his consciousness is separated and he looks at objectively, and that's called horse love or fat. Essentially, it's a part of Philip K. Dick. Here, he does the same thing, but he actually makes the part of him that had those experiences in 74, that experienced Vallis, a separate character named Nicholas Brady. And that's actually presented as a good friend of Philip Dick. So it's it's the same kind of splitting up a character, but while in Vallis, it's, it's clearly presented as a part of Philip Dick's psych, psych, psychology and psychosis and, and uh, perspective that he needs to look at objectively. Here he does it just by creating a different character. And that actually makes for a more interesting novel because we get a lot of the, the, the kind of uh, the tension you get in a post-apocalyptic police state in which you, there's, te- there's problems like, do you inform on your friend? What do you do when your friend is putting you at risk uh, because of his political... Um, deviations. Uh, to what degree do we stay loyal to our friends, even if it might mean we're going to end up in jail or imprisoned? Um, so it works better in this novel, I think, for for that reason. It's also a, a novel about a protest movement uh, that's protesting a tyrannical state. So while in Divine Invasion, it's just sort of you wait for uh, something from heavens to save us. And in Vallis, it's, you know, it's you know, objectively, that novel is just like about a crazy person who thinks weird stuff is going on and is searching for God. 
um, who says we're under a black iron prison. Here we actually see the black iron prison in action. We see the tyrannical police state. We see people put in jail. We see people executed. We, we, we see, uh, you know, people, you know, suffering under all, you know, like in prison labor camps and things like that. So it's a much more well-developed dystopia than anything we get, I think, in the other Vallis novels. Uh, maybe Divine Invasion is the closest, but even there we just get a snapshot of the political power. Um, so that's one thing I really like about Radio Free Alpameth. We also have a lot of the Philip Dick themes. We have the young, attractive woman who, who essentially seduces one of the main characters. In this case, it's, it's Nicholas Brady who gets mixed up into that. We got uh, a fractured relationship. We, of course, got the police state. We got the dystopia. We have music being a major theme here. In fact, it, uh, what else do we have? That's really Philip K. Dickian here. Of course, we got the, the kind of the shifting realities and the the the, the Vallis stuff that that's in the Vallis trilogy. Um, now this does fit into the Vallis trilogy thematically as well, in that he's playing with ideas that are going to come up in all the other novels, uh, such as the sick and dying woman. This is in all four of these novels. Is the woman with some kind of terminal illness um, facing it in 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 Divine Invasion? It was Ribus in Vallis. It was uh, Philip Dick's friend who died of cancer in the first half of the novel in Transmigration of Timothy Archer as Timothy Archer's lover who has it. And we have a similar character here who's, who's sick and somehow that sickness helps inspire our characters into action. Also, it's somehow connected to the cosmic um, uh, battle taking place. We also get uh, a fuller description of what Vallis really is in this novel, which in, in the book Vallis, it's just like hinted at in a movie they watch. And then you kind of get the, this passage of the exegesis where it's talked about. But here, it's actually a force, and it has a history, and it has a role in history that makes things he talks about in the other Vallis novels makes a little bit more sense. And if you put these together, if you kind of group them together, you know, the, the idea that there's, there's kind of a, a special wisdom in the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Um, you know, that's the idea that the Hebrews knew something. Where did that knowledge come from? Well, it's sort of explained here in that Vallis is a satellite. It's a literal satellite that's out there, that's visible. It's a physical thing. It's been there for thousands of years. And it's only when human beings got involved in the space race that it could be really exposed and revealed and then eventually destroyed, right? So we actually witnessed the end of Vallis in this novel. And then the question of where do we go from here? Where does this movement that's going on for, for millennium really a kind of an underground movement that's always been opposing state power, organized by Vallis, you know, made up of a small population of people who have that special, you know, connection to it. And I think where this comes from, in part, is not just Dick's own experiences, because certainly he did have this and he thought, you know, he played with the idea that it was like a satellite from the Soviet Union or aliens or something telling him information. But I think in a more meaningful sense, what we can take out of this is that in any given time in history. There's always going to be that part of the population that just doesn't fit in, that doesn't accept the rules as written, that somehow knows something or just doesn't feel right in the system, right? Most people seem to go along with it, right? And even in, in Dick's day when this was being written, it was Nixon, right? Nixon talked about the, the quiet majority or the silent majority that makes up of most people who don't see anything wrong with the system, you know, with capitalism, with empire, with whatever it is. They just, they just accept it, right? And 
you know, you could change radically change the system, and that's a point in this novel. Is you could radically change the system. You could actually have a communist in the in, as president of the United States, and people would still wave the flag and cheer their their president because that's what they they do. But there's always going to be a group of people who don't who don't feel they fit in, right? So there's going to be subcultures. There's going to be movements of resistance who oppose that, and and that's always been there. And and you know, in Dick's kind of more religious. We're reading of this, it's the it's the Hebrews first, right? And of course, they have an understanding of God, they, and that's that's essentially Valis. Valis spoke to them, spoke to certain people, especially because they were herders. That's the explosion we get here. That they were herders, they were um, migrants, and so they had a special connection to the satellite, and they interpreted it as God, right? Other people are going to interpret it in, in various ways, and so of course we have all throughout history, but it's always something that opposes tyranny. It's always something that that opposes death. And it's always there that presents a gestalt in opposition to a fractured individualism that's easily exploited by, by tyranny. So we even have a theme here that he last explored really brilliantly, I think, in Galactic Pod Healer, which is the, the idea that the gestalt can give us meaning, right? Now here it's, it's presented more bleakly because our characters reach it after death, after dying. Uh, but that said, I, I really... I actually I really appreciate what this novel's trying to do, and I just think it's a shame that it was left on the on the back burner when he went and, and wrote what I think are are not quite as good novels uh, to to express his thoughts at the, at the time. Less comprehensible novels. This one is, I think, much clearer, much sharper, um, and overall much more meaningful. Uh, the novel itself is broken up into three parts. The, the first part, which covers the first half of the novel, is is just called Phil, and it is from the perspective of Philip K. Dick. And he's basically learning that his friend Nicholas Brady has had these experiences. And then he kind of comes at it as a science fiction writer saying, well, you know, maybe there's some explanations here. Maybe there's some meaning we can give to this. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, he, he just kind of gives advice on it as, a, as someone who knows science fiction, but more or less he's a skeptic. Uh, but he comes to, to start to believe Nicholas more and more. Part two is about uh, Nicholas and it deals mostly with his, from his point of view, how he gets more and more affected by Vallis, his feelings of loss when Vallis is destroyed, and then ultimately how he gets worked up into a, a, a movement called a ram check, which a ram check is this kind of broader gestalt of people who have a connection with Vallis, who have a connection with this satellite and can speak to it and can hear it. Um, you know, it doesn't come as a voice always. It comes sometimes just as one's internal conscience. Um, and he eventually gets, uh, he try, He works for a, a recording studio, so his plan is to sneak in messages subliminally into popular music. That, that essentially fails, and he's arrested at the end. Uh, in part three, which is the very short kind of almost epilogue to the novel, it's again, we're back to Philip Dick's point of view, and he's essentially in jail, and his career has been taken over by the state that will publish novels that served the state under his name, won't, it won't be written by him, and he gets basically sent to a forced labor camp for the rest of his life. But the ending, despite being bleak, Nick is killed, uh, other characters who mean something to us in the novel are, are killed pretty unceremoniously by the state. But uh, the ending is very hopeful, and despite Valis being gone, despite the next replacement maybe coming thousands of years later, there's so much hope at the end of the novel despite it being one of his bleaker endings. And I, I think it's really, really well done. And it's, it's, it gives hope to humanity. There's a character at the end who, who says exactly what I've been saying you know, ever since I started reading the Vallis novels is, 
the solution has to be on Earth. It can't, we can't look to the sky for solutions. And by killing Vallis, I think Dick did something really radical here, is that he liberated us from the necessity to look for the, the, the Savior from, a, from, a, from far away. We have to look to ourselves. That's where salvation must come from. That's where the, the Black Iron Prison must be destroyed by us on this, on this Earth. This is the theme he moves away from in in um, Divine Invasion and Valis, where it becomes more about both searching for the savior. At the end of this novel, there is no savior. There's only each other. There's only two prisoners. Essentially, there's two people condemned for the rest of their life into forced labor, you know, communicating. But that's all, that's, that's, that's what they have to work with. And that's where we have to lay our hope. But Dix remains hopeful at the end of the novel. And I think it's really, really well done. So I, I don't know how much I'm going to say about this. Like the last few Vals episodes, I, I'm kind of breaking up how I record it, putting some thoughts out there as an initial kind of recording, and then I'm going to come back with some more detailed notes about this. But um, I do recommend Radio Free Alpameth, um, and I'll tell you why uh, when I come back shortly. All right, then, let's, let's dig into this, this novel. Um, so... The first part of the story is all from Philip Dick's point of view. It's the first, I think, 13, 14 chapters, almost the first half of the novel, at least by chapter count, but it turns out to be a little bit more, less than that. It's all from Philip Dick's point of view, and it's really him telling the story of Nicholas Brady. And as I've already said, Nicholas Brady is this kind of aspect of Philip K. Dick in real life. So a lot, a lot of the things that happened to him, the incident with Christopher, with the the birth defect that he somehow in tune was real and went to the doctor and it turned out to be to be real the the pink or the the, the pink beam the, the 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 woman with the fish sign we don't have to repeat all these events of of 1974 they're repeated here in the story in a, in a slightly different timeline but it, it's really philip dick hearing from this friend nicholas brady about his encounters with Vallis, and that's what we get um, so we start out with this biography of, of Nicholas Brady, actually. Um, and again, it's, it's often very autobiographical about Philip, Philip Dick. So Dick's the mixture of these two characters. In fact, like in Vallis, the, the Philip Dick character is kind of the, the more neutral observer. But he plays a bigger role in the story, I think, than Philip Dick does in, in Vallis. Like there, it's really horse lover fat that's driving the story more. Dick has, has a more significant role here, especially in the end. So we, we, we see as Nick drops out of ROTC, drops out of college, has a lot of hostility to institutions. Again, this, a lot of this is being pulled from Philip Dick's life himself. But we, he, Dick doesn't take too long before jumping into Nicholas Brady's paranormal uh, experiences. What they start out as kind of like dreams and other kind of weird events and, and having kind of visions and things that he takes to be real. Um, now... He's also beginning to be investigated by the state. And I, I think one thing that makes this novel a lot better than Vallis is the state is a major player in it. The, the state is active um, in this. And we see the growth of a totalitarianism, right? It's almost like an alternate history where instead of Nixon, they get an even worse uh, authoritarian president who basically turns the United States into a full-blown dictatorship. But we see the roots of it. And the roots of it are are familiar to someone who you know knows 1950s America, like the the anti-institutional family that gets investigated by the FBI or something. And that's exactly what happens here. He gets investigated by the FBI, who's really asking questions about his, his wife. Um, so as we see Dick's delusions emerge, we also see his anti-institutionalism anti grow. Now here's what Dick writes, 
Philip Dick the author, Philip Dick the character in the story. He's the narrator of this part of the story. Quote, it seems to me that it was Nicholas who was living in a fantasy world, working in a record store as a clerk. Meanwhile, always lost in a great literature of a sort of divorce from his own reality. He had spread so much James Joyce that Dublin was more real to him than Berkeley. And, even, and yet, even to me, Berkeley was not quite real but lost, as Nicholas was, in a fantasy. All of Berkeley dreamed a political dream, separate from the rest of America, a dream soon to be crushed as reaction flowed deeper and deeper and spread out wider. A person like Nicholas Brady could never go to Alaska. He was a product of Berkeley. And he could only survive in the radical student milieu of Berkeley. What did he know about the rest of the United States? I had driven across the country. I had visited Kansas and Utah and Kentucky, and I knew the isolation of the Berkeley radicals. They might affect America a little with their views, but in the long run, it would be solid conservative America. The Midwest, which would win out. And when Berkeley fell, Nicholas Brady would fall with it. Um, not only is this a great window into the character of Nicholas Brady, but into Berkeley itself, right? And into its kind of oddity. And, you know, the, the whole problem in American politics, the people who are in that bubble, they, they think that any, anyone who thinks differently must be crazy. But, you know, it was that, that silent majority, as Nixon said, that, that brought him into power and, and uh, changed American history. And, but if you're, again, if you're on the coast, you're, you're in an enclave like, it's not even the coast, right? Because Orange County was incredibly conservative. Uh, Nixon was from California. So, but if you're in those pockets, right, you don't really see, you're in that bubble, you don't see the rest of the world. Um, so we start to then get windows into the career of Ferris Fremont. Um, uh, and he's from Orange County. He is, so he's very much a Nixon character in this, in this way. And we learn that Ferris Fremont's career is centered around this fear of this other, this organization that's out to get him and destroy America called a Ram Check. And a Ram Check is just the, at this point, it just seems to be the, the, the pariah other that any fascist uh, populist movement would use to, to identify the enemy, right? Um, we're all familiar with that now, these days, I'm sure. And we see the kind of the path of Fremont's rise. It's all laid out here that Fremont will become the authoritarian president. Now, again, this is stuff that's told in Vallis through that movie that the, that the characters watch. That kind of, this is the alternate history described in that, that movie, although in a very kind of weird way. Now, Nicholas at one point has this kind of dream of Mexico that seems to have a lot of truth into it. And he starts to think that God is the one directly talking to him, that he's actually with God. And so he knows Phil Dick is a science fiction writer, so he begins to have discussions with Phil about his meaning. Um, and Dick plays with science fiction tropes, you know, like, is it, could it be an alien, or, or how does, like, language work? You know, they, at one point, Nicholas Brady says something like, well, he's talking to me directly uh, using language, and Phil Dick says, no, that's not right. They talk to you through telepathy, because telepathy is what is used when you have... Um, you don't have like a universal translator or something. You use telepathy to communicate. So it's really f fun where you got Philip Dick actually talking about how the science fiction genre works and what doesn't work and, and kind of batting off his ideas. And I, I, what I think is really cool about this is it was almost like if Philip Dick, uh, you know, looked objectively from a genre point of view at his own work, he might come to some of the same conclusions, right? And of course, Nicholas Brady is an avatar of, of part of Dick's personality in real life. Um, so these are some really fun conversations where they're sitting around and talking about what this all might mean um, from, from the perspective of, of science fiction. Now, Nick gets a job at a place called Progressive Records at this point, and that, then he has to move to Orange County. So despite being pretty much a Berkeley person, as, as Phil, Dick, Phil Dick says, he has to move to Orange County uh, to this, this conservative enclave in America. Um, it's around this time that he names this thing that's talking to him, this, this God entity, 
uh, VALIS, Va um, Vast Active Living Information System. And he thinks he just invents it out of thin air. Um, his wife uh, basically starts to accept that he's been invaded by some kind of consciousness. So his wife, Rachel, is a supportive figure through much of this. And um, I don't know, I should think a little bit more about this character of Rachel, because when I was taking down these notes, I didn't say much about Rachel. But Rachel is, I don't know if Rachel is almost like the ideal wife that that a supportive wife that maybe Dick wanted to have in this period in his life. I. I don't know. That, that may be a, a little bit of a overinterpretation. I don't know. But let me know what you think about that. I, you know, This is a, a very different than a lot of the women characters, particularly the wives in Dick's fiction, who are always presented as problematic or hostile or abusive or you know money-grubbing or something like that. This, this is not that kind of character. Rachel's actually quite supportive throughout, of it, throughout that. Um, so uh, Dick and Nicholas are, there, are in Orange County. And, you know, while well, he's when he moved down there and there he Dick's visiting and they begin to investigate Ferris Fremont's hometown. And while they're there, they see carved into the sidewalk the word Aramchek. And they start to think, well, what does this mean? What is this word Aramchek signifying? What is it referring to? What's its purpose here on this sidewalk? And there's different theories, like maybe it was just someone's name, the name of a construction company that did it. Um, and then why does Fer Fremont care? So then the theory is that essentially as a young child, Francis Fremont saw this name. Couldn't, he couldn't explain it. So he kind of deduced a vast conspiracy around this word, a ram check. And he just kind of morphed that into his political delusions later in his life. It's a really cool idea. I mean, that itself could be a, a really fascinating science fiction story where you see a, a, a populist figure, you know, finding another organizing a movement around it, a completely delusional other, and then we find the roots of it as some kind of uh, something carved in a tree when he was a kid or something. That, that'd be, that's a really good idea. And it's played with here. Uh, the way Dick writes it here is, uh, quote, the idea of Ferris Fremont playing here as a little boy, the idea of Ferris Fremont as a little boy at all anywhere was too bizarre to be believed. He had rolled a little tricycle by the very houses, skipped over the very cracks, and had tripped on in the night. His mother had probably warned him about the cars passing along the streets. The little boy playing here, investigating fantasies in his head about people passing, and the mysterious word, a ram check, inscribed in the cement under his feet, con conjecturing over the weeks and months as to what it meant, discerning in a child's mind secret and occult pursuits in it, that were to blossom later in adulthood into full-blown florid paranoid delusions about a vast conspiratorial organization with no fixed beliefs no actual membership but somehow the titanic enemy of society to be hunted out and destroyed whenever found i wondered how much of this had come into his head while he was still a child maybe he had managed the entire thing as an adult he had merely voiced it oh so good so good uh that's a novel right there just that idea i i'm i'm, I'm sure um so anyways uh at the, around this point, Fer, Fer, Ferris Fremont gets elected president. It's 1968, so it's it's Nixon. It's this 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 reality is Nixon, and so we get uh, the whole narrative of the rise of totalitarianism in in America, particularly through the experience of Philip Dick. Uh, now, the major kind of goons of of not a Ramchek, sorry, the the goons of Ferris Fremont are called Fappers, and F A P F A Pers. And these are the people who basically do the investigation, who build dossiers. They're the FBI, the the Ferris Fremont version of the FBI, the secret and the secret combined with the secret police. 
Um, so there's beginning of an investigation into Nicholas at this time, as well as into PKD by, uh, into, and progressive records. So um, an agent, at one, there's a nice little subplot here where Philip Dick is visited by an agent. Um, what was her name? Um, Kaplan, Vivian Kaplan. And Dick thinks he's going to like outsmart her by sleeping with her. And then once she sleep, he sleeps with her, seduces her, you know, she'll be compromised. But it turns out that she looks at like her wallet and she's 16 and now he's realized, now I'm a criminal. Turns out she's not, she's actually 19 and that was just a ploy. But how the fappers actually are one step ahead of, of these people. But the, the idea of how you can prevent the secret police by just sleeping with them and somehow discrediting them, it's, it's kind of fun and it's a nice little, um, a very Phil Dickian moment uh, that he throws in, uh, in there. Um, but the main part in this story, and, uh, and we're about a third, quarter of the way through the story already, is this beginning of the investigation into them. Now, someone comes with a questionnaire that Dick has to fill out. It's basically presented as, you know, why don't you tell me your life story? We're really interested. The government wants to know. And tell us about this guy, Nicholas Brady, as well. And so he has to make this confession. If you don't make it, of course, then you get on the list, right? And if you make it and you don't confess anything interesting, you get on the list. If you confess too much, it's too obvious. If it's obnoxious, you get on the list, right? So the real trick here for Philip Dick here is to write a response to this inquiry in a way that doesn't really get too much attention to him, but also doesn't through omission or by saying too much. And it's another fun and funny moment. Apparently, according to the book at least, that this was something the North Koreans did to American soldiers. Just give them a piece of paper and have them write something. And in fact, they ended up confessing um, quite a lot. Um, here's how he starts one. He starts, I think, this one with like a, um, a, a full confession. That's what his first attempt is. Quote, I, Philip K. Dick, being of sound mind and reasonably good health, wish to admit of being a high official for a period covering many years of an organization known to its enemies as a Ramchuk. In the course of my training for subversion and espionage, I learned to lie, if not to outright lie, to distort so effectively that what I say is worthless to those who hold power in this, our target nation, the U.S. of A. And he goes on with that. Of course, if that's true, then there's nothing you can say that can be believed here, right? Uh, he ends up writing a more mild version that's a, also a... A very harsh condemnation of, of Nicholas Brady, calling him not a human, basically taken over by aliens and all this stuff. So he, uh, I don't know what version he ends up going with. We get these two kind of extreme confessions um, and uh, you know, given. But uh, the whole idea of the kind of a, a what's the prisoner's dilemma in a totalitarian society that's collecting this kind of information, right? The old model of the prisoner's dilemma doesn't work, right? Where if everyone stays quiet, you know, no one gets in trouble, right? But if being in jail is the end of your life, you know, it's not like just one year. And the normal prisoner, right? If everyone stays quiet, everyone gets like one year in jail. If someone confesses any other, someone gets 20 years and someone else goes free, right? So the idea is you should all be quiet. Here, you know, going to jail is like a one-way ticket for everyone. So it kind of changes the nature of the printer's, printer's dilemma and changes the nature of how to write these kind of confessions in a way that that satisfies what the state's looking for. Um, so uh, I already talked about the Vivian Kaplan story, um, but it's, it's a nice little Philip Dick moment here too, where it's, it's kind of like, what is what is true, right? Where's the truth in, in anything that you never really know? And in this case, it's her age that's totally not known, right? Is she... She seems to be old enough, but the 
the ID says she's under 16. Later on, he finds out she's she is in fact over over. I think she's 19. So he wasn't committing statutory rape. Statutory rape. Um, but anyways, um, after this in initial investigation into Nicholas Brady and Philip Dick, life just goes on. And one of the f another kind of funny aspect of just living in this kind of society is that they have to listen to Fremont's speeches and everyone gets homework assignments that they have to fill out. And of course, at the one hand, like, these answers don't matter because they're like multiple choice questions. And yes, there's going to be millions of answers from all over America. But... You know, the, they're still trying to figure out, well, what's the answer you want? So I think one of the, they give the speech and you're supposed to answer based on the speech. But one of the questions is something like, um, is, is the Soviet Union a technological threat to the U.S.? And if you say yes, it, it suggests that the Soviet Union is good, right? If you say no, then it suggests they're not that dangerous, which of course is not also PC. If you say they're kind of technologically equal, maybe that's the right answer, right? And they actually sit down and have these conversations. What's the right, right, right answer to this question? And there is different, there's no right answer really. They're all kind of trick questions. Yeah, here's a good one. The greatest enemy of, that America faces is one, Russia, two, our high standard of living, highest in the world had ever known, or three, secret infiltration in our midst. We knew to put three. However, Nicholas that night was crazy mood. He wanted to check two. It's our standard of living, Phil. That's what's going to doom us. Let's all check two. And, you know, they go into debate about what they, what, you know, should they do that? Now, on the one hand, it doesn't seem to matter because the government's collecting millions of these cards, these little note cards with these questions. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's, it's interesting um, how this kind of surveillance state, the voluntary, the confessionary state, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. For those Foucauldians out there who are interested in the nature of the confessionary state, uh, you can read this novel and, and, and do some analysis of it. Um, so Nicholas, though, he still gets conversations with Phallus. And we're nearing the end of the Philip Dick section. Um, and he starts to get these messages um, about empire. And that's the heart of it. And basically, we, we're back to the kind of we're in the, still in the Roman Empire, the, the kind of the visions of the Sibyl and all that. And so the idea that the United States is an empire, of course, is key throughout the whole Vallis novels. And it's um, the one aspect of it that I think it's, it's kind of politically interesting, actually. It's not, maybe not literally an empire, but so of course the United States is an empire. It says it's a republic and a democracy, but at the end of the day, it's an empire, right? Um, but most people don't really see it that way. You know, a cynical person like me sees it all the time and acknowledges it, but many don't. And I think, you know, that's, you know, it's not about that we're literally necessarily living in the Roman Empire. It's that the institutions of power and empire have remained throughout um, history. Uh, so he starts to get these messages about empire. And Nicholas experiences anamnesia. Anamnesia, another important concept in the Valis novels, this kind of end of forgetting, right? And he starts to realize that it's not, he's not being learning new information. He's just uh, letting go of his forgetfulness. Now, at this point in the story, Dick... Philip Dick, the narrator of this part of the story, still has his doubts about Nicholas, but he's, he's trying to be a friend, right? Or whatever. So um, that's the first 14 chapters of, of Raider Free Albemuth. Um, and then part two is Nicholas, and it's all from Nicholas's point of view. So actually, Philip Dick kind of falls out of the story at this point. Um, in fact, in the narrative, they kind of, the, the kind of Nicholas's experiences kind of push Dick away. A little bit. And Nicholas has his own things going on. So kind of the story takes a a right turn at this point. Um, he starts to get more paranoid about what to do about the state, and and he starts to feel he's getting 
letters or or inquiries because he works for progressive records so he starts to think he gets like you know communists who want to public publish music with them and he actually at one point informs to the fbi or to the government to the fappers i guess uh, on the communist party trying to contact him and the question he has with his wife here is certainly and something he seems to realize at one point is the question is Fremont a fascist or is he a communist? And up to this point, we just see him, he's a fascist dictator, obviously. He's got all the accoutrements of fascism. He has the, the outsider, he's the essential leader, uh, militarism, secret police, all those elements of fascism. Um, and here, Nicholas suddenly decides and realizes, and of course, he's getting this information directly from Vallis, that Fremont is actually a, a, a closeted communist. He's actually an agent of the Communist Party, just faking as a fascist. And this is another part of, I think, Dick's political philosophy here that is interesting. I think he's more wrong here. I think it's, it's, it's just bad history to somehow suggest the fascists and communists were two sides of the same coin, right? They certainly were both, had, you know, were authoritarian, you know, so Stalinism at least, Stalinism and, and Nazism. But they're very different ideologies, and, and they come from different traditions. But, um, you know, that's what Dick's playing with here, is basically the, the difference between fascism and communism is just the other side of the coin. And Francis and Ferris Fremont actually is an agent of the Communist Party, and he's taken over America. And that's the realization that, that he comes to, that the whole Cold War is then a facade, which, of course, that's an old Philip Dick idea of... The Cold War itself being a facade. In his early works, it's a facade to promote consumerism in a novel or a short story like Foster, You're Dead. Um, and here it's, um, it's, just, uh, it's just a way to cover up the fact that the United States is being run by a communist dictatorship. It just looks fascist from, because that's the image the Fatada puts up. At his heart, it's communist. Um, no class war, though. It just, it's, I mean... At some point, right, what you are is how you present yourself, right? So I, I have some doubts that, you know, if, if a communist takes power but wants to hide that he's a communist, so he sets up a fascist regime that oppresses people using fascist means, that has a fascist ideology, that does all these, you know, right-wing economic policy and things like that, you're a fascist. I'm sorry. You can't, just because you're deep down you think you're a communist doesn't make you one, right? You are what you do. So, sorry, I don't know about that. I don't know really how this works. Um, I don't see, see how it really matters if he's a closeted party member. But anyways, um, agents approach Nicholas Brady telling him, we need you. We need to recruit you. We need you to inform on any folk songs with political messages, um, mostly like communist political messages. So the idea is if a recording company comes to you, they, they have their lyrics, they want to record this music and it's political, then you just tell the government, right? We'll give you money to do that. You have money problems, so we'll, we'll help you out. Um, and he, of course, can't really say no to that, but so he, for a time, he's basically on the dole of the, of the government informing on these artists. Uh, he continues to get messages from Vallis, though, and he starts to see Vallis as a Sybil and talking about it as a Sybil. Um, and at one point, he gets the name, a particular name of a person from Vallis, and that name is Sylvia Sadasa. Sylvia, S-I-L-V-I-A, Sadasa, S-A-D-A-S-S-A. -A -S -S -A. Um, also references to a Portuguese states of America, which seems to be an alternate reality. That's not this reality, right? An alternate reality where maybe England never rose, or maybe is it the Thirty Years' War was ended up different. That, that might have been it. 
but you know somehow American or, or Britain and France never colonized America, so it ended up being Portuguese states of America. Um, but actually, Spain would have been on the other side of the Tordesillas line. So, but anyways, uh, that, that we live in the Portuguese states of America in some alternate future. And he starts to have dreams of this person, Silvia Sadasa. Um, and then later, Silvia Sadasa, Sadasa Silvia, she goes by, arrives to Progressive Records looking for a job. She has, uh, she's this novel's sick, dying woman. All the Vallis novels have a sick woman with cancer or something, right? Vallis had it, Divine Invasion had it, there was MS. Uh, Transmigration had it, and this novel also has the, the sick, the ill woman. The ill kind of woman who's a harbinger of some kind of political movement or, or idea or change. Um, she's sick, but she's recovered. Her like cancer's in remission, and she's going back to school. And she wants to get a job. To you know, she, she knows the cancer's going to come back, though. She's pretty pessimistic about it, but she wants to move on with her her life um, after recovering temporarily from her cancer. Um, now, Philip Dick enters the story around this point, and we're we're almost two th two thirds of the way through. Phil Dick enters and gives his advice on on what Nicholas Brady should do. And he starts to, to say, okay, let's take this as like an alien entity. Like what would they be after? What would their goals be? What would their methods be? Right? Where, where they are, you know, with this Portuguese state of America, are they some kind of cosmic Roman Catholic church? Are they religious or whatever? And, and Dick is a little bit more open-minded than he was in the first half of the novel about Nicholas's experiences. And he, he, he kind of enters the narrative a little bit more at this point. Um, and really what kind of comes out of all these conversations and Nicholas's own conversations with Vallis is the connection between Vallis and some kind of broad anti-Fremont movement, which may be called a Ramcheck, right? Um, now, a re relationship between Sadasa and a Ramcheck seems to exist, and Nicholas figures this out. He, he finds out that uh, Sadasa's maiden name, or she's not married, but her original name was Ramcheck. Her mother's name was a Ramcheck, right? And she had died. Um, but because of the Fremont movement, uh, Sylvia Sadasa had to change her name. Sylvia Ramchek had to change her name to Sadasa to, to hide this connection because she would be too many questions from the police or whatever. Um, of course, this just makes you know, Brady freak out, right? It's, it's amazing that this, has, that this connection exists. Um, so he gets into his mind that he really needs to record uh, a record with Sylvia Sadasa, that her, that her real contribution to the movement is going to be to record a song, and the song is going to have a message that's going to be anti-Fremont. That's what someone like Nicholas Brady can do to contribute to the overthrow of Ferris Fremont, is by being a record producer, by putting out into the public these uh, messages. Um, so now he's also very attracted to Sylvia Sadasa and wants to sleep with her. And he starts almost having an affair. Never quite. He never quite has an affair with her, even though his wife at one point calls Sylvia like, your girlfriend. But he never quite goes, goes that far with her. But he does want to get close to her. And at one point, she mentions a boyfriend. And Nicholas is like, oh, yeah, I forgot she had a boyfriend or something like that. You can tell that he's, he's very attracted to her and wants to have more of a relationship. Um, so he's trying to get Sylvia to kind of record music. Eventually, she, she turns down the job because she decides to go to school instead of getting a job. But Sylvia Sadas will be back in the story. Um, now, they get news, Rachel and Nick get news while they're watching the TV, that the Soviets have discovered a satellite 
that's um, out there. And it's what is it? Is it alien surveillance? It's not no country claims it. It's some kind of weird satellite out there. Now, that's Valis. It's Valis. It's what's been communicating to people on Earth. Um, Nick's very excited by this because it realizes he's right. He's not crazy. And there is something out there in space that's communicating with them. He write, or we get here, um, this is Nick as narrator now. Um, Put very simply, I'd come to regard Valis and the AI operators along the communication network as divine, which meant they were not subject to mortal death. One does not blow up God. Here, however, were my wife and my best friend nattering at me about the source of my divine help had been pinpointed. Satellite ordering Earth, beaming down information, and caught in the act now by the USSR's leading astrophysicist, their great scientific sleuth, Earth's cosmic cops, armed with radio telescopes, counter satellites, and warheads, and God knew what else. So the good news is it's real. There really is this thing beaming information down to them. The bad news is the Soviets are going to blow it up, obviously, because there's some relationship between Vallis and Aramchek. Um, Ferris Fremont is a Soviet agent, essentially a Soviet uh, communist. So whatever the Soviets do, it's, it's to aid um, Ferris Fremont in his movement. Um, now, with so he's really excited about this, and it kind of changes his point of view. So he's out driving, and he gets into an accident, and he almost dies. He has all these kind of visions of Valdis during the you know after the accident while he's in the hospital, and he wakes up in the hospital, and he realizes that he's or he thinks he's been healed by Valdis. You know, his his injuries have been cured too quickly to not be some supernatural or or, you know, pernatural per um, cause. And it seems it's Valis that healed him. Um, so with this, he just fully commits to working to undercut Fremont's, uh, Ferris Fremont's regime in any way he can. So it kind of gets fully committed to the movement. So he meets up with Sylvia after he's out of the hospital. And Sylvia then at one point admits to him that, that she's a part of Ramchek. So this is... Another kind of great revelation for Nicholas is that he, that Ramchek is a real organization. It's not just a delusion of a Ferris Freeman. And Nicholas even says, like, we saw it, it was just a name in the concrete when he was a kid. And she says, no, 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 we're a very real organization. And she says, in Vallis. And Nick thinks, well, Vallis, that's just the name I gave it. And she says, no, no, that's the name Vallis gave you. And all this information has come from Vallis. And Vallis, what Vallis has been doing throughout history for tens of thousands, 10,000 years or something, is orbiting Earth and giving people the information, creating networks, uh, healing people from time to time. They're the burning bush that, the, that, that Moses saw. All these divine interventions, so to say, these religious interventions are this satellite. It's another good kind of, it's a good science fiction idea, I think. Um, you know, I don't think he's original in thinking this. You know, to try to explain the miracles in the Bible through supernatural causes. Dick even did that with resurrection in, um, in the skull, one of his earliest stories. But still, I, I kind of like what he does here. And it's, it's preferable to what he does in Valis, which is just such a kind of goofy novel in comparison. This is at least pretty solid science fiction. Um, but Sylvia says, no, you know, Ramchuk's a real organization. We're all over the world. world. We're all the people who have connections to Valis. What we have in common is we've been talking to Valis. We've been interacting with Valis. And she begins to tell this history to, to Nicholas. So then they get into their plan. What are they going to do about it? They're just two people. Now, there's not going to be an overthrow of the state. Really, what they're going to try to do is get into music uh, a subliminal message. 
And that subliminal message is going to be, it's like a party song that you're going to have someone perform. And that it's going to be like, we're all going to come to the party, presents at the party, and eventually it's going to sound like the presidents in the party. And that combined with other songs, they're going to have other subliminal messages like in the background singing and, and in the music, going to connect together a story that's going to argue that, that's going to show that Ferris Fremont's in the Communist Party and that we're basically being ruled by, by the Soviets. And so that's the plan. That's the resistance. That it's, it seems very mod, modest. It's not going to overthrow the state, but it's a little bit. It's 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 all the movement really can do. But it's almost if you think about infrapolitics, right? There's this great concept in political science called infrapolitics, and it's developed by this guy named James Scott. And the idea of infrapolitics, it's it's the politics you can't see. It's it's day-to-day -day resistance. It's uh, farting when the aristocrat walks by or it's you know paying your rent late even though you have the money just to annoy the landlord it's these things don't seem to matter and they probably don't in a lot of cases but in the aggregate they corrode a regime they corrode on like belief in a regime or whatever uh, and like we look at slavery right a lot of resistance to slavery was this kind of day-to-day -day resistance slowing down being lazy at work breaking tools running away for a few hours right and then coming back you know, on its own, it doesn't seem to do much, and it seems almost silly, maybe. But collectively, it has a big effect, right? And although it's not really stated this way here, it's, we're all get it from Nicholas' point of view, who's just trying to do anything to undermine Ferris Fremont's regime. Um, here, it's just let's get a message out there through through a song. That's the only way we can publicize something. Um, so they're planning this, and. And Sylvia's actually on board. She was actually, they were planning to do a similar thing with Progressive Records anyways, a Ramchek was. Um, so it wasn't just Nicholas Brady who thought of it. And again, there's this idea that Vallis is kind of communicating what to do to people, how to, you know, healing, organization, information, strategy. It's all coming from Vallis. Now, the Soviets explode Vallis. So they explode the satellite. And now there's a big concern. What will happen? Will Sadasa, Sylvia's cancer come back? Will um, Nicholas... His, the healing from his car accident, will that be undone? Will the organization fall apart? How can we go on without, how can this organization, a RAM check, go on without, without um, Vallis guiding them? So um, now Nicholas gets a very climactic meeting from Vivian Kaplan. Vivian Kaplan's that same woman who Philip Dick slept with, thinking he could outsmart the Fappers. Uh, but Nicholas is very defiant. That's why it's climactic. He's, this is really the climax of the novel, is where Nicholas stands up to Vivian Kaplan, talks back to Empire, talks back to power, even though knowing that this means he's going to be exposed and probably hauled off to jail. Probably Sylvia will too. Maybe his wife and whole family will be executed. But nevertheless, he stands up to the regime at this moment. And it's a very uh, dramatic um, encounter. Um, but uh, in the final chapter of the Nick section, is Sadasa and Nick discuss their very bleak future. They pretty much know they're going to die, but they're optimistic that a Ramchek organization, a community, a group of people will survive. Then we get uh, the final three chapters of the novel, which are from Phil Dick's point of view. So um, the first of these chapters is just the last meeting with Nicholas um, and then they're arrested. Nicholas, uh, Sylvia's arrested. They're all rounded up. Um, Philip Dick's arrested and and sent to a prison. Um, 
while he's in this prison, he hears that Nicholas is executed, and he actually talks to Sylvia a little bit. He didn't know Sylvia very well. Uh, he only heard about her, but Sylvia does talk with him. She knows she's going to be executed next, so, I mean, within moments. It's, it's a pretty bleak ending, actually, of the novel, and we assume Nick's family is killed off. And that's what happens to Ramchek people. They're just killed off arbitrarily. Dick's fate is a little bit, uh, a little bit brighter. Uh, he won't be able to write anymore, but his... Novels will be published under his name, and there'll be novels that basically uh, conform to state ideology, um, and they're hackneyed science fiction novels with many sequels, many bad sequels. And they actually, Sylvia and, Nate and Phil Dick are able to joke about this, uh, the horrible novels that he's going to publish uh, in the rest of his life. But he's resigned to that fate. He eventually gets uh, something like, you know, like 50, 60 years in jail for his crimes, and he chooses to go into the work camp rather than just to waste away in jail. And in the final chapter, he's in his work. You know, he's eating lunch. It's lunch break during the slave, at the slave labor camp. And he meets this guy, Leon. Now, Leon, it turns out, was a preacher before he was sent off to the prison camp. And what we find out is this Leon is apparently part of a ram check or he's had some connection with, with Phallus. Um, but he makes him, he, his message is not to look to the heavens. His message is to look to us, that basically without, without Valis, it doesn't matter because really where resistance will be is in this world. And it's a really great ending, actually. Let me um, find this, what uh, this guy, Leon, says. In fact, you know, Dick gives him half of one of his cigarettes. It's like he's got his last cigarette. And he gives half of it to Leon while Leon's saying this to him. Um, they talk about the science fiction that Dick wrote. And let me find it. Well, they talk about a ram check. And then Leon says, you know, this is a ram check stuff. It's all in the Bible, right? So the the parable of the sower, that's that's about a ram check, actually. And he gives some other examples from the Bible. Something about a silver egg. Um, he says, that pearl of great price and the treasure which is bearing the field. The man sells everything he has to buy the field. Pearl, treasure, egg, the yeast that leavened the mass through all. Code words for what happened to your two friends. And the mustard seed that's so tiny but it grows into a great tree that the birds land on. Birds fill in the sky. And in Matthew, the parable about the sower going out to sow. Some seeds fell on the edge of the path. Some fell on patches of rock. Some on thorns. But listen to this. Some fell on rich soil and produced their crop. In every case, the master said, that's how the kingdom is, the kingdom which is not of this world. Um, and then Phil says, Phil says, tell me more preacher. And then he says, I'm not a preacher. I actually don't think the kingdom of heaven is outside of this world. The solution's in this world. So Dick says, all the parables of Christ have, have to be decoded then, I asked. Yes, preacher Leon said. The master says he's speaking cryptically so the outsiders won't understand. Matthew 13, 12. And you know what he said is true? Yes, Amazing, not understanding, I said. And yet you still? Still, I say, Leon said, that hating this world and forgetting this world is not enough. The work must be done here. Let me ask you this. Where did the master teach? Where did he do his work? Here in this world, I said. You see then, Leon said, returning to his bologna sandwich. These sandwiches get sailed every day. We ought to complain. End quote. And right there, a little bit of infopolitics. Complain about the sandwiches that they have to eat at their... At their um at their work camp, 
Um, now, the very last scene of this is they're sitting there still eating lunch. There's some kids playing, watching the poor prison camp folks um, you know, through the fence or whatever. And then they hear a song on the radio. And it's actually the song that Nicholas was preparing with the lyrics. Um, everyone present. Hey, hey, everyone present. The people say everyone's present at party time. Everyone here have a good time. This is what Nicholas was preparing to put out there. But another, they, he was caught doing this and he got arrested. That's, that was the justification for arresting them. But some other recording studio got this message out and it's on the radio. And even though the radio will be shut down, even though those people will be arrested and that group will probably be executed, you know, those records have been printed and they're out there. And so there's a little bit of glimmer of hope at the end of the story that that Aramchik is still alive in this world, that it doesn't need Valis to endure, that the messages exist, whether it's in the Bible or just in, in people's struggle for dignity in an authoritarian system. And resistance is still possible. And that's that's how the novel ends. And I, I think it's a really great ending to the novel, that, that final scene with Leon and, and Phil Dick in the prison camp, um, eating bologna sandwiches, talking about the need to endure struggle. They even are planning, like I think Neon talks about how he has a box of propaganda pamphlets hidden away somewhere, and if they can get away, he can get at them and, and distribute them. You know, just little victories, but enough little victories in that regime can be broken down. And it's not about the divine invasion. It's not about Emmanuel coming down to save them or friends from Frolox aid. It's actually about building movements and that constant struggle against the black iron prison and for me that's so much more important message than what we get in the the other valis novels which are are all much they're much more religious actually this novel despite having religious components is really a story about resistance against an authoritarian authoritarian regime and what individual people can do with each other and in helping to just tarnish the edges of it because maybe sometimes that's all you can do sometimes all you can do is tarnish the edges of it but eventually you know there's still history and and that's the that's the glimmer of hope at the end um, so yeah. that's radio free album myth um, that's my thoughts about it um, so that's it um, I think I'm going to sign off and uh, end the Philip K. Duke book club for for a while actually i think i'll come back with a very short uh episode where i'll just sort of explain what my plan is going forward um i'm not going to totally shut this down i'm i'm done with my goal my goal is to read through the works of philip k dick in chronological order of publication starting with stability which i guess that was published posthumously but one of his first stories to his final novels and i have accomplished that i think but there's a lot of holes there's a lot of cleanup to do there's a lot of um there's a few works I missed, and then there's a bunch of posthumous novels. So I need to uh, plan going forward. So I'll explain what that is probably in a future little mini episode. Um, but for now, that's it. So leave me, leave your own thoughts about the Valis trilogy or Radio Free Album Myth. Um, I think this is my favorite of these four novels. What do you think? Do you have a favorite of the Valis trilogy and why? Um, what are your overall opinions about these, these works? So let me know what you think. Leave your comments below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, again, I'm not going to be putting up Phil, Day, Phil K. Dick episodes probably for a while, um, but I, I'll still be putting out material on other American writers. I'll be doing some science fiction in that series as well. 
So um, I'll be continuing to upload stuff on this podcast, but it won't necessarily be Philip K. Dick stuff, um, at least for a little bit of time. I may do some other special series. Um, this took longer than I had, you know, had expected. It took me two years to do this, so I'm a bit hesitating to go jump into an author as prolific as Philip Dick was. Uh, but there's there's some other writers that I may want to to look at to do kind of a special series on where I look at more systematically at one writer, you know, while doing my main hundred pages at a time um, book reviews and and, and thoughts. So um, I don't know the future of this kind of a approach to to this podcast, but um, we'll see. I'll think about it. Let me know what you think though. If you have suggestions or comments, or is there a writer I really should dig into? Let me know what you think. So that's it for now. Um, thanks, as always, for listening. And thanks for bearing with me for two years through the Philip K. Dick Book Club. If you joined uh, within the last two years and there's works by Philip Dick that you want to know more about, there's a good chance that they're on this podcast. So go back into the history uh, and you, know, you can do that through iTunes or you can go on Podbean and search it. Go back, go back as far as you can and you can find my thoughts about his early stories in the 50s, some of his earliest novels. Um, and also go visit other Philip K. Dick podcasts. There's some great ones out there um, besides mine. So, um, uh, yeah, plenty of, uh, plenty of Philip Dick stuff on, on, in the podcast realm. So uh, for now, uh, I'll, I'm going to sign off. Uh, I'll see you soon with a little update on what my plan is going forward. But um, goodbye, and um, hopefully you keep listening. I'll see you, see you when I get back to you. Oh, my God.